G'day folks, welcome to another Chit Chats with GitCats, number 43. Where did the time go? I jumped right in the deep end with these, didn't I? And good thing I'm not freaking out about going live to YouTube anymore. It's become very much easy. When things go pear-shaped, people are here for the train wreck. But hopefully no train wreck today because ding dong, who's at my front door? None other than Mr. Jeff Martin. Hey Jeff, how are you, mate? Mate, I'm good. Especially when I hit the wrong button on my little controller like I just did then. But that's perfectly fine. Jeff, I usually start these off by asking people how they got into playing the crazy six-string piece of wood we call the guitar. How did it all start for you, mate? Well, Rick, it started for me when I was seven years old. Now, when I was four, my mother bought me a ukulele and uh, I took quite a liking to it and I remember um, being able to like from five six years old I was picking up melodies on the ukulele Wow now my mother's uh, my mother's brother my uncle Larry when I was seven years old he started uh, showing me uh, chords on the guitar and the way I remember it was that he had this big Gibson jumbo, you know, dub acoustic guitar, right? And for me at the time, it seemed like it was like this. Yep. Right. But he showed me uh, chords to, like, for instance, the Everly Brothers and Elvis and uh, Roy Orbison. And, um, and that's kind of how I started at seven years old. And then um, my father who uh, was a bass player um, and really into the blues and all that. Once he saw the shining that I took to the guitar, my father at a very early age, like probably like eight, nine years old, started making me listen to like B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, all the cool. Kings. Cool. And, um, and I just kind of went from there. Yeah. Nice one. Nice one. And singing, I mean, not only are you the guitar player in the band, producer, etc. Singing, did that come early for you? Was that something that came out of necessity later on? Um, well, I, I started singing, like, again, like, so I come from a French-Canadian background, right? So one of my earliest memories would be, like, uh, me being in the bath and my mother teaching me French uh, you know, like nursery rhymes, like, you know, songs and all that. And, um, but then um, in grade school, believe it or not, um, Jeff Burroughs, the drummer in the Tea Party, still mm -hmm. to this day. Yep. I think so, because yeah, there's no other drummer, right? <laughs> um, but him and I had our first band together when I was 10 years old and he was 11. Wow. And and I was the singer, uh, you know, quote unquote lead guitarist. I didn't really, you know, know that many leads at the time, but uh but I was the singer. And uh it kind of started from there. And then um, you know, it, it's complicated, but you know, I don't know, like uh nineteen ninety was when uh, the Tea Party officially uh formed with Stuart and myself and Jeff Burroughs and 
that's kind of when I more or less became a professional lead singer. Uh-huh. Cool. Cool. So you said you, you grew up listening to the Kings, or you, your father introduced you to the BB Kings, the Albert Kings, etc. Um, how did you get the Middle Eastern influence in your play? Because, I mean, it's very obvious well, that, that's, that... That's a very good question. How did that come about? <laughs> well, how it came about was this. Um, I had, uh, so that same uncle that taught me those first guitar chords, his son, who, which would have been my first cousin, was probably three, four years older than I was. Um, I was a big Beatles fan as well um, in my, you know, like, uh, from, I'd say, like, from eight till 11 years old. I was a big Beatles fan, but what I didn't like, I didn't like the older Beatles, you know, the ones uh-huh. with, like, beards and, and the long hair and all that, right? That kind of scared me. Okay, right? yeah. But my uh, my cousin, Michael, uh, decided on my 11th birthday that he was going to properly educate me on the Beatles, because up until that point, for me, it was only like, you know, I want to hold your hand, she loves you, yeah, 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 blah, 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 right? And um, so Michael, my cousin, for my 11th birthday, uh, he bought me Sgt. Pepper's. And uh, it was a cassette. And my father had this, uh, like, the our family home, like, my dad was all about audio and visual and all that even back then cool so we had we had the best cassette player that you could ever imagine but it was probably about this big (laughs) (laughs) and um i put it on i put sergeant peppers on and i remember hearing the george harrison track within you without you and now i don't know if uh you know many of your people that are watching, um, if you believe in past lives or anything like that. But all I can say is that at 11 years old, when I heard that George Harrison track with the sitars and uh, the tabla and just that classical Indian influence, it was almost like at 11 years old, uh, I remembered everything. Wow. And that's when it all started. Cool, cool. So what was the first exotic instrument that you got into playing uh, once um, you discovered that? Well, see, the thing was that coming from Windsor, Ontario, where the three of us uh, grew up, uh, three members of the party, um, you're kind of hard-pressed to find any Indian instruments in a border town, you know, bordering on Detroit. But what happened was with the, um, with the success of the Tea Party, which came quite quickly, uh, we got signed to EMI in 1992, Splinter Souls came out in 1993, and all of a sudden we had a platinum record, videos, and all that stuff, and we're touring the world. And so the money started to come, and... um, as opposed to spending it on, you know, like um, cars and houses and all that, I traveled 
and uh, I started collecting the instruments that I had always listened to, but had never acquired as of yet. Cool. So I think the first instrument that I acquired, as far as exotic instruments are concerned, would have been a sitar. So that was the first one. And then um, when the Edges of Twilight happened, which was our, uh, our second record with the Tea Party, all of a sudden we had a budget that you know, we couldn't spend. And so what we spent it on was instruments. So therefore, as the story goes, with the uh, Edges of Twilight, um, I don't know, 30, 35 instruments are played on that record. Uh, wow. Because we spent a lot of money on them, you know. Very cool. So... In terms of guitars, what was your first seriously good guitar that you got? What did you graduate to after you started playing at seven? Well, uh, it's funny that you say graduate because when um, when I was in grade school, so like in Canada, grade school, like uh, primary school goes from you know, kindergarten to year eight. Okay. And in year six, uh, my father bought me uh, like a Les Paul copy. It was uh, a company called Vantage. Uh-huh. So a black Les Paul. Right? Yep. But he told me that uh, come year eight, if I was to graduate with honors, like uh, honors being like, you know, 80% and upwards, right? That he would buy me my first, you know, serious guitar, right? And, um, so I was pretty dedicated, and I made sure that uh, honors happened. And my dad took uh, Jeff Burroughs and I up from Windsor to Toronto, so you know, up the highway, like four hours. And we went to the big music store in Toronto called Long McQuaid's, which would be the equivalent here in Australia of like Billy Hyde's or something like that. Okay. Yep. And um, and I picked out uh, I picked out a Les Paul Custom. You know, cherry red with gold hardware and all that. It's the same guitar that people would see me play uh, uh, that first uh, Tea Party video, The River. Uh, that was that guitar. Cool. And um, and yeah, and it was heavy as fuck. You know, but but I loved it and it sounded amazing. And yeah, ever since then, my love for Les Pauls and Gibson guitars, uh, well, it's never waned. So. It's funny. Like I was just thinking, you said you got the the Vantage Les Paul in year six and I think whatever it is that you get thrown into your hands at first really steers the direction that you want to go with guitars would you not agree like for me it was a Strat style guitar and everything since has been Strat style Uh, so and just looking around your room there I can see you're surrounded by Les Paul and Gibson style um, guitars do you you have uh, do you like Fender style guitars as well or you the Gibson style, oh, I your thing. Do, but um, I, I've I've never, out of all the guitars that I own, so like probably around the world, there's forty eight, maybe fifty guitars that I have. Right. Mm-hmm. The one guitar that I don't have in my collection is a Stratocaster, but I do have uh, a Fender uh, Telecaster. And now, here's what's interesting. Would you like to see it? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. So I'll get my beautiful assistant to hand it to you. <laughs> um, 
so. Now, there's a story behind this uh, Telecaster. Mm -hmm. This Telecaster is it's a 1969 uh, Telecaster. Now, but what it is is it's the prototype for the Parsons Light B-Bender. I saw yeah, that straight it, away. I could see the two dots. And I thought, yeah. oh, hello, B-Bender, yep. Yeah, so B and an E. Uh, I haven't looked up the E for quite some time. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I can get my head around most things, but yeah, go on. Right? <laughs> but this thing, uh, like this is uh, the guitar that I use um, on um, Correspondences off the edges of Twilight. And I use it live, right? It's got like a jetpack uh, humbucker in that position there, right? Mm -hmm. So when I hit the lead uh, pickup, it really uh, it takes over like a humbucker, right? It's got a lot of gain. Yep. And uh, the whole B-Bender thing is uh, something that's, uh, well, you know, I mean, I've learned some, most of my tricks off of Jimmy Page. Yeah. And uh, this is another one, right? And... Uh, but I love it. Like I've taken it, uh, I've taken it a bit further because I've gone back to the um, you know uh, Clarence White, who was the inventor of this uh, mechanism. Mm -hmm. and for anyone that's ever listened to like the Burrito Brothers or the Birds, uh, Clarence White's guitar playing and his bee bending, uh, it sounds like a pedal steel, you yep. know, and um, so yeah, it's uh, it's part of the arsenal. Like especially the guitars that I have here in my studio are different, like much different than the ones that uh, I have overseas that are in storage for specifically for the tea party because those are live guitars. Whereas like here, every single guitar that I have here in the studio um, has a purpose and has a very distinct sound. Uh huh. Yeah. Now, somehow, when uh, you said you, out of all those guitars, you only had one Fender, I knew straight away it was going to be a Telecaster. I could just see that being something that you'd be playing. How about amps, mate? What, what type of amps do you gravitate towards? Or are you one of these guys that has a multitude of them? Well, um, with the Tea Party, again, uh, in storage in Canada, waiting to be fired up, uh, I have... Uh, I have matchless amplifiers, so when you see the Tea Party play live, I've got two 120-watt uh, Super Chief heads, three matchless 4x12 cabinets, and then on both sides of those, I've got two Fender basements, right? Mm -hmm. But that's all in storage over there. Over here uh, in my recording studio, I, uh, I simply have, um, I don't know if we can show you this or not, no we can't, but I have a uh, you know how Jimmy Page uh, used to use um, in the early days of Led Zeppelin? It was called the Supro Amplifier. Uh-huh, yep. Well, I actually have the amplifier before it was called Supro. It was just the Jensen Speaker Company. And so this amplifier that I have here in the studio dates back to 1959. Um, and it still works, don't you? Yes, you still <laughs> Um, and it sounds amazing, you know, because uh, the thing that um, a lot of producers that do rock music, uh, what they don't get 
and what page always got uh, when recording Led Zeppelin and producing Led Zeppelin is less is more, right? Uh-huh. And um, the smaller the amplifier, uh, the smaller the wattage, the more that you can fit it in to the actual stereo spectrum of the speakers, right? Uh-huh. You know, because like uh, you start recording Marshalls at like 11, uh, and then you try to fit it into a mix. Well, it's it's not really fun for the ears. Not at all. Not at all. And this seems to be something that's uh, a common theme talking to various guitar players. I know both the guitar players from Australian band The Angels brought up the fact that one of their big records back in the 80s, they were using a little amp with an 8-inch speaker and it just sat perfectly in the context of a mix. So I totally get what you're saying there. Very good. Mm. Uh, Jeff, I... I Figure you're probably not much one to be using modeling then. Have you ever tried any of the modeling amplifiers out there? Um, I have. Um, they they work great for like uh, like for instance when um, when I was over in Vancouver in October of last year and uh, I was doing some tracking with the Tea Party at a studio called the Armory. Um, well. When it came to just rehearsing, right, it was great, you know, because you could just dial something up. There it is, right? But that's just for rehearsals, right? But um, I prefer to, uh, you know, do the hard yards and uh, find the right amplifier and the right sound properly, you know, uh, for when it comes to recording. Sure, sure. I have found that there's just something about the way it sits in a mix. And I was talking to somebody about it this morning that, Modelers just don't seem to sit in a mix quite the way that a mic'd up speaker does. I didn't figure you'd be much one for, for using one of those live. No, 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 no. I've never used it live, but uh, but they have they, they serve their purpose, right? But but the thing is though is that when it comes to recording, you know, you have to you have to understand that it's dig- digital masking, you know, like more or less, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, so. You're kind of, uh, well, you're fooling yourself or you're fooling the actual stereo field uh, by thinking that, oh, I can just dial in a Fender Twin. Well, no, you can't. You have to actually have a Fender Twin or you have to have a Supra or you have to have a matchless combo or you have to, you know, because um, if the recording is done properly, uh, it does not lie. True. Very true. Now, Jeff, you mentioned Jimmy Page as being a big influence. Is there uh, some other guitar players that you could cite as being big influences on your, on your playing? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, Jimi Hendrix uh, was very big. Uh, when I was, I think when I was 16 years old until I was 18, I don't think I listened to anything else. Wow. Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah. Um, and then um, when I... Around 20 years old, um, I met I met uh, you know Roy Harper, a big hero of mine. Um, Roy Harper is uh, very much associated with Led Zeppelin and with Pink Floyd, and uh, he comes from that folk background in England, right? Uh-huh. Folk fingerstyle guitarist, right? And then um, he turned me on to guitarists like John Renborn and Brooke Hanks and David Graham. Um, and they became uh, those 
well, those three guitarists became such an integral part of my influence as far as uh, my acoustic playing when it came to writing for the Tea Party or even to this day with my solo stuff. Uh, like, well, for instance, uh, it's a very, very misty, rainy day here uh, in the mountains outside of Molenbeek. And um, Melissa and I, uh, we were listening to John Renborn as we were getting, you know, this beautiful cauliflower truffle-infused soup going on the stove, you know, so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so looking at you, your acoustic playing and the, um, the Middle Eastern influence, having to learn scales to, to play that kind of thing, was that something you just did by ear or did you seek out books trying to, to find how to get that exotic sound? No, well, as I told you, Rick, like uh, going back to when I was 11 and I heard that Beatles song, um, something happened and it's, it's very inexplicable. So uh, I'm supposed to be a man of words, but I really don't think I can put it into words. I, I just remembered everything. Wow. So when I, when I started, uh, you know, like with the success of the Tea Party and traveling around the world, and I could find these instruments that I had always heard, right? Uh, because my father, uh, when I was a teenager, would give me an allowance, and I would go over to Detroit, and I would buy any records that had, like in the world music section, that had like an instrument that I'd never seen before, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like a sarod or, uh, you know, or like Moroccan instruments like a gimbri or an utar or things like that, oud, you know, for instance, right? And um, I would just completely saturate my psyche by listening to the music. And then eventually, when I started traveling around the world and I could collect these instruments, uh, I got it. They all came. Nice, nice. Now, how about the electronic influence? Because in the in the Tea Party music, there is that bit of an industrial electronic edge is happening in there as well. Where did that come from? Well, essentially, uh, with with the edges of Twilight, um, you know, with the whole uh, Middle Eastern Indian influence, and that being our second record, um, I felt. At that time, um, I felt that, well, we had done that. You know, we had basically, now we put our stamp on something in rock and roll, right? To the point where after the edge of Twilight, any rock band that did anything remotely Middle Eastern got compared to the Tea Party, right? Uh-huh. So that was, you know, there's your stamp, right? But then I thought, okay, well, now, what are we going to do now? And um, at that time, one of my favorite records uh, was the Downward Sparrow. Yes. And and I loved uh, Trent's production. Um, And I I thought to myself, like, okay, is there any way possible to make a marriage, an alchemical marriage of yeah, what he did and what we've done at just the Twilight and put it together and just see what happens. 
Wow. And well, and that was transmission. Nice one. Man, I, I got to say, seeing Nine Inch Nails live back in about 95 for myself was just a real turning point for me and just led me down the rabbit hole of production and electronica, nasty sounds, making it all fit in there. So great influence. Jeff, I know you're short on time. I want to ask you about some of the guitars you got in the room there. Do you care to show us some of those? Yeah, sure. Let's have a look at some of those, babe. All right. Well... Show you this one. So this is um, my 1968 um, Les Paul Black Beauty. Nice. Uh, but what it has in it uh, is it's called a transperformance uh, guitar system. Never heard of it. What's that all about? This guitar tunes itself mechanically, not digitally, mechanically. Wow. So, for instance, if I can uh, you know, plug this in without boring people, right? Um, where did that go? Uh, it's just too many cables sometimes, man. <laughs> um, I just have to find it. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. So. One second. You're right, mate. Am I? So being that it tunes itself, does that, uh, can you program alternative tunings into it? Do you think? I uh, hope so. That would yeah. be one of the, the major draw cards of it. I'm just trying to get some light in here. And is that something you use live a lot to help accomplish all the different tunings that you use? I have. I have used it live, yeah. Trust me, this is worth the wait. Okay. There we go. Got it. All right. So, essentially, so this guitar, um, when Tea Party performs with Page and Plant in 1996, we did the very last show that they did in North America at the Montreal Forum. And I saw Paige play uh, this guitar, or, well, not this guitar, but this guitar, like a, a guitar with this system in it, mm -hmm. right? Now, Paige was only using it so, like for an effect, like to begin a song, right? To go back and forth between tunings. Yep. Okay. But then when I, when I spoke to him after the show, and he explained to me how it works, I was like, oh, okay, no. This guitar was meant for me, right? Uh -huh. So essentially, essentially, it's like this. So I've got all these menus in here that I've programmed, right? But for instance, the edges of Twilight. Okay? So right now, 
I'm in standard tune. Right? Uh huh. Yep. Now I want to go to fire in the head. Fire in the head is like D A D F sharp A D. I'm in standard tuning right now. I hit one button. Beautiful. And if I want to go to the bizarre. Wow, that is so cool. It's like NASA in a guitar. Yeah. You know, I had one of those uh, Line 6 modeling guitars that could do all the alternate tunings, but digitally. And what sucked about that was when I wore earplugs, you actually can hear through the bones in your fingers. And I could hear the original, what the strings were really tuned to. And I thought I was playing wrong notes. Everyone's going, no, it sounds great. I'm like, no, man, I can... So you see, like right here, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Six robotic arms that move, uh, like this hexagonal pickup here, yep. translates tension into pitch, and it moves these six robotic arms. Wow. Yeah. What? I can I can understand when you said when you saw one, you just went, "That is the guitar for me." <laughs> oh yeah. What else have you got in the room there, mate? That you got time to show us any more? Uh, I've got time to show you one more. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I'll show you this one. That uh, hopefully, if this nonsense with uh, COVID nineteen ends mm-hmm. sooner than later, so Mason is going to be making a signature series uh, acoustic guitar. Nice. And could it be nothing else but this? <laughs> wow. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if only you could get that tuning system put onto that guitar. No, I've got guitar text for that, man. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can we hear a bit of that one? Um, sure, I think so. So being a signature guitar, did you choose the woods and everything in that? And what woods are they? Um, I, I didn't. You know what? I have to be honest with you mm-hmm. because the prototype. Yep. We're going to be working on um, like what's going to come out, right? So I have no idea what this is. But it sounds good. You yeah. just know it sounds good. But, uh, but we will work on the woods and like inlays and stuff like that. And they'll all be like, you know, Zodiac and, you know, 
symbols and shit like that. Yeah, so yeah. it'd be fun. Was that a, a current production model that you had tweaked at all, or did they? No, no, it? this is the first one they've ever made. This is it. Nice, nice. Jeff, I know you said you only had half an hour to spend, mate. We've hit that mark, so I do thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been nice talking to you. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. Um, am I right in thinking there is a new Tea Party album just out or about to come out? Um, there is a uh, well. Black River came out about a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, but yes, there is a new one that I'm working on, which uh, that's the reason why I've got to cut this short because I've got to like finish a couple mixes tonight. Um, but other than that, uh, my new solo EP, Cinnamon Rose, came out uh, uh, about two and a half months ago. Um, and and that's doing extremely well. And um, yeah, things are, things are looking up and up. Awesome. Awesome. So I thank you again for your time, Jeff. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And I'm going to hit the button. You know what happens when I hit the button? It's all over.